Hey, let's, uh, let's welcome all of our, our campuses, because every campus is watching us live right now, our, our North Cobb campus, our Midtown campus, our Hamilton Mill campus, because all the pastors are on vacation this week. <laughs> and so we're, we're going to pray over that, and also all of you that are on our online campus, which is actually our largest campus uh, by far, because so many people are still online watching us. So we welcome you. Uh, we've got people from New Zealand, from the United Kingdom, from Jamaica, from all over the world. So let's welcome everybody online. We appreciate you being with us. Amen. For those of you that have been with us for the last few weeks, we are in a series called Be Like Jesus. It came from a word that the Lord gave me back in the winter of this year uh, as I started thinking about how can we mobilize the church to be more effective in the world? How can we get more of you engaged in winning people to Christ? And the reality of it is, no matter how much we talk about it, teach it and all, if we are not like Jesus, if we don't feel like Jesus, if we don't smell like Jesus, if we don't look like Jesus, then we're not attracting people to Christ. We are, in fact, for some people, the only Jesus people will ever see. And so when people look at us, they need to feel and see and smell and, and think that they're around somebody that's a Jesus person. And so I talked about that from the very beginning, that the starting point was holiness and the fact that we need to kind of get all the junk out of our life, all the unholiness out of our life and start living right. How many of you believe that God wants you to live right? And, and I've, I got some wonderful testimonies. I had couples that were living together that are now no longer living together and they're getting married and things like that. Those are great testimonies. And if you're living together, what is, what's up with that? It, it don't, don't, don't be living together outside of marriage. Don't be having sex outside of marriage. No matter what, that is not okay with God. There are no exceptions to that. But these are things that a lot of people in the world, when they come to church, they don't know that. And, and, and so when we talked about holiness, we talked, that's what Jesus is. He reflects, you can't imagine Jesus living like some of the people that are calling themselves uh, Christians live. So Jesus is holy. Then we talked about the fact that he's kind. And I like the kindness of God because it's the kindness of God that lowers people's uh, anxieties or fears or intimidations around people and they start to see that you maybe are trying to do something to help them instead of hurt them. And it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And then my wife did an amazing job last week on attentiveness. And uh, I said, that is you, that's who you are. That's, uh, that's why I gave her that one subject. I said, that is who you are. And it came right out of her. That's one of the best messages I've ever heard her preach ever in, in this church. And, and, uh, and this week, this week, this week's message, y'all are kind of like, what, should I clap on that or not clap on that? Y'all clap for Pastor Colleen. She's, she's all right. All right, then. <laughs> but this week uh, is kind of I'm, my part is wrapping up. Pastor Darius will be with you next week to kind of bring the, bring the final message on this series. So y'all gear up for that. But uh, this week, I, I started thinking through all the different features of Jesus. And this one feature is the one that stood out to me. And, and I'm going to call it Compassion compassion. Now, let me tell you where it started with me because um, <clears throat> a lot of us don't really understand compassion like we need to. We, we, we think we do, but we really don't. So this happened many, many, many years ago when I was a kid. I was about 12 years old, and I was in the Boy Scouts. And I was in the Boy Scouts when boys knew they were boys and girls knew they were girls. <laughs> Y'all remember that day? 
Back in the day when there was no confusion, you're a boy, you're a boy, you're a girl, you're a girl. I'm not in the wrong body, I'm not the wrong sex, it's who I am. <sighs> Hallelujah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I know, right? Now, I'm not making fun of it. I'm not making fun of it because, because there are people even in our church that still struggle with things like that. And, and I'm, I'm not here to belittle that in any way, but here's, here's what I want you to understand. God is not confused. Uh, if you were to stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm in the wrong body, what do you think he would say to you? What do you think he would say? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I made you in the wrong body. No, God created you like you're supposed to be. And, and the reality of it is, is the world has another another agenda to so confuse our youth culture today that they don't even know who they are or what they're about. And, and, and that's, you know, a lot of that's through the internet. You didn't see this until recently, really in the last few, you know, 20 years. Anyway, I'm a boy, I, I, I'm the Boy Scouts, not the Girl Scouts, and, and we do things to serve the community. The Boy Scouts at that time was all about God and country. It was all about raising kids to, 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 to cherish God and their relationship with God and to cherish their country and to do something good to serve their country. And I thought it was a great, it was a great thing. My, that now it's gone bankrupt. They have 82,000 cases of sexual abuse and, and they, they don't call them the Boy Scouts anymore. They call them the Scouts. The girls can be in the Boy Scouts. Boys can be in the Girls It's just crazy right now. But back then, I'm old enough to remember they took us out and they said, we want to serve the community. And we're, we're going to these houses for Thanksgiving, giving these uh, Thanksgiving baskets to families. And I'll never forget it. This happened, let's see, I was 12 and I'm 64 now. So whatever that is, 52 years ago. I, I remember it as if it was yesterday, walking into this, up to this house, knocking on the door. And it was in the town that I grew up in, McDonough, Georgia. And I hear a voice very faintly say, come in. And we opened the door, and it was completely pitch black inside the house, and it was freezing cold, and there was no electricity. And I heard this person in the background, come on in, come on in. Who are you? I don't know who you are, but I'm just glad you're here. And I'm thinking to myself, no, we spent thousands of dollars to secure our houses. We put all kinds of videos and doorbells to let us know who's there to keep people out of our houses, and this person didn't even know who it was, but they didn't have anything to lose because there was nothing to steal. Come in. We came in the house, and it turned out to be an elderly lady in a wheelchair. And she was an African-American elderly lady in a wheelchair sitting there in the dark in her home, no electricity in the middle of the winter. She was depending on someone else to help her because her family wasn't helping her. And not only that, but she wasn't just in the wheelchair, she was blind. She couldn't see. So it didn't matter whether there were lights because she was the same whether there were lights or no lights. So we, we had some flashlights, we turned on flashlights and we sat there and we, we ministered to her for a little bit and then talked to her about the food and she, has, she had somebody that would come over daily and feed her and help her to eat, but that was pretty much it. She sat there all day by herself, no TV, no radio, no, no books reading, nothing, just sat there in the dark. When I left that house, after we left that house, and she was so thankful, so grateful, just very kind to us, when I left that house, God did something inside of me. And I, I look back on that and I, it's, it's like I can remember it like it was yesterday because I remember walking out of there thinking, I, I've never 
I've never been around that before. I've never seen that kind of thing before. And that's when the Lord started taking me on this journey of compassion. Now, when I started studying the Bible, I began to realize that Jesus, when he was in the earth, the number one thing that seemed to motivate him was this concept of compassion. So I, I went through the scriptures to just see what, is it, what does it mean? And, and here's the scripture, Matthew chapter nine, verse 35. It says, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest, this is the great soul winning verse, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his service. Now, we talked about this before, how the average Christian never leads one person to Christ, never even thinks about it, never even talks to people about Jesus. The average person that calls themselves a Christian keeps it private, keeps it, keeps it kind of secluded. It's, it's, it's a private religion for them. They don't share their faith openly. And we talked about the fact that in the world, wherever you see the gospel spreading, it's always spreading as a result of persecution. Persecution causes the gospel to spread. It's what caused the gospel to be birthed in the New Testament. It's what caused the book of Acts to take place. All the apostles, the disciples, they put their lives on the line every single day for their faith. They knew that at any day they could get arrested. In fact, all the apostles were martyred. Only one didn't die. Even though he was thrown into a pot of boiling oil, he lived supernaturally. The rest of them were either hung upside down on a cross, their heads were cut off, they were stretched in two, even Paul himself had his head cut off. They died this martyr's death, all for faith in what they believed was the eternity with Jesus. Now, as you start to study through the Bible, you begin to realize that there was one key driving thing that took place in them, and that was their willingness to suffer for the gospel. And this is the missing element, listen, this is the missing element in America. The missing element in America is we don't want to suffer for anything. We don't want suffering. We run from suffering. We preach a gospel of no suffering. We preach a gospel of, of God's protection, his provision, his power, his healing, his might, how, how you are in Christ and how great you are and wah, rah, rah, you. But we don't preach a gospel of people willing, willing to give their life for their, for their gospel. When you see the gospel thriving in the world, you'll see it's because people have this thing called compassion. And the word compassion comes from two Greek words. One's con and one's passive. Passes, it means with suffering. In other words, it's the gospel with suffering. But it's not just suffering, it's a willingness to suffer for other people. It's the sorrow or distress and for the distress and misfortune of another person with a desire to help them. I see what's going on out there. I feel other people and I want to make a difference in their lives. It's identifying with another person or a group of people and saying, I see your situation and I allow myself to feel the situation in order to do something about it. This is what Jesus did. Now, when you start to study the life of Jesus, you begin to realize that his whole driving thing was compassion. And as you go through the Bible, you begin to realize Paul was the same way. Paul 
was all about learning to suffer for the kingdom of God. Now, you got to remember, Paul is this, this religious zealot. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees, one of the most educated Jews of his day. He used his education to kind of come across as superior knowledge to the, the general person that was studying Judaism. And he got this thing in him about this sect called Christianity that we need to get rid of. So he went about trying to eradicate the world of Christianity. He stood by watching Stephen as he was stoned to death for his faith and celebrated it. He would go everywhere he could to arrest Christians and take them to Rome so that they would be tortured and eventually persecuted and die. So this is Paul. Paul then, on his way to Rome for one of these, for one of these journeys, is slain by God in a Damascus Road experience where he's brought to the ground. He has a conversion experience. Temporarily, he's blind. But eventually he gets healed, he gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and he turns into another man. By the way, God wants to turn you into another person. He wants to turn you into another person. Now, I think this is the thing a lot of Christians don't get. Christians think, well, he loves me just as I am, just as I am. He doesn't want to leave you just as you are. He wants to change you into another person. He, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. If old things are still grabbing hold of you and still a part of your life, then you need to be born again. I'm not talking about joining a church or confessing Christ. I'm talking about surrendering your full life to Jesus. So he, find, he gets saved, and one of the things that he does is he begins to teach the people what it's like to have a relationship with Christ. And, and, he's, and he's lost everything. And by the way, all the apostles, when they got saved and they started serving Jesus and following Jesus, they gave up everything. Houses, lands, even family members left them. They lost their jobs. They lost their careers. They lost their savings. They lost their goods. They lost it all. What would happen if you lost it all? Well, what happened to them is it just propelled them forward. It just made them go harder at it. And, the, and that's what the world started seeing people get saved. And the reason why, listen to me, listen to me. If you don't hear anything else, listen to me. The reason why they were able to go forward in the midst of all that persecution and all that trouble it's because they have made a decision, I'm willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. So Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church. And here's what he says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I've counted as loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, I just want to know Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his what? Sufferings being conformed to death by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, I was recently, I told you before, I went to China a few years ago. I met with the underground church that has about 120 million people in it. And I talked to the five uncles. And one of the things they reemphasized to me over and over again, because I said, how could, you, how could you live under these incredible circumstances where any day you could be arrested, taken from your family, tortured? Many of them had spent years in prison, been beaten almost to the point of death, and still held on to their faith, and were still spreading the gospel. And I said, how can you live like that and not be afraid? And they said, it's very simple. We made a decision once we became 
a follower of Christ, that we were willing to suffer for our faith. And he said, that's the missing element in America. You guys are not willing to suffer. And he said, as soon as suffering starts to happen, you freak out. You freak out. You think you can solve it through politics. You think you can solve it through government. You think you can solve it through social programs. And he said, and you stop preaching the gospel. He said, and, and I remember them telling us, they said, that's why people in America don't spread the gospel. They spread a brand of Christianity that's not in the Bible. It's an American gospel. It's a gospel of prosperity, a gospel of comfort, a gospel of blessing. It's a gospel of grace, but it doesn't involve suffering. But if you read through the Bible, every single person that followed Jesus had to go through suffering. Now, the principle of being like Jesus, listen to me, is you have to be willing to suffer for the sake, listen to me, of other people. For the sake of other people. Because being like Jesus means you're willing to suffer for the sake of other people. It means that your life is not all about you. It's not about you. Your life now on the earth, and I want you to please get this. This is a whisper of moment in your, in your whole time of eternity. This is just a little dot on a gigantic ocean of time when it comes to your life. Your life, once it ends here, has eternity. It lives forever, either with God or without God. And I don't know about you, but I wanna be the with God person, amen? I wanna be with God. And the last thing I wanna do is miss God because I was all about me on the earth. Feeding my flesh, taking care of myself, thinking about my problems, amen? So. This church that I saw, saw in China, the reason it was spreading the gospel because the people had no fear of death. You don't have any fear of death? What are you worried about? What are you worried about? I don't have any fear of death. What, what am I worried about? If I don't have fear of death, then you're, you're trying to put fear on me. It doesn't work. It doesn't matter what you say. Y'all all right out there? And so I'm starting to think through this. Now, we're heading into a season of time. I believe, prophetically, we're heading into a season of time that's drawing closer to the return of Jesus. Now, I don't know when he's coming back. I'm not gonna give you the date. I'm not gonna give you the time or the hour, but I do know this. I can feel it. You can feel what's happening in the earth. It's starting to implode. And you're starting to see that all of humanity is starting to have all kinds of struggles. There's all kinds of fear, all kinds of worry. Every day you wake up, there's something new to fear. As soon as we got finished with COVID, we got monkeypox. As soon as monkeypox, there'll be some, how many of you know there'll be some new thing that'll come out there and it'll scare people and their whole life will be behind a mask for the rest of their life. At some point, you just gotta come out from behind the mask and just face yourself and say, well, if I die, I die. I'm gonna go forward. I'm gonna do what Jesus told me to do. I'm not trying to survive. I'm trying to live for Jesus. All right, so I started going through the Bible. I said, okay, what are the principles of compassion? How do people get compassion? Because it doesn't come naturally. It's something that's developed in you as a Christian. Now, people have compassion sometimes, but they don't understand that when they feel this compassion, sometimes there's something God wants to do through that compassion. It's not just a feeling of compassion, it's a action of compassion. So how do I get to the place where I start to have more, how many of you want more compassion? You want more? About 10, 15, 20 of you want, because I heard, you heard suffering's involved, didn't you? I don't want that. 
I want, I don't know about you, if I'm gonna be like Jesus, I gotta press into everything Jesus was. And he is compassion, all right? So the first thing that I think you have to do to develop compassion is you have to begin to see people who are in need. You have to see them. Now this is hard for some of us because, because as I said, a lot of us are not in environments where we see everything. About two, three weeks ago, I was coming back on a, from a trip to Florida and I'm driving back into Atlanta on a Saturday afternoon. And it used to be on Saturdays, you could drive through Atlanta, just go right on through the city, no problem. Y'all remember those days? There was a day where you could just drive right on through the city. Saturday, it's a weekend, nobody's driving. That day has gone, long gone, right? Now you have to figure out ways around the traffic because there's always traffic all the time. Whichever way you're going, there's traffic. You're gonna hit traffic leaving church. The only time you didn't see traffic was coming to church. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going and, I, and, and this, this uh, ways alerts me and says, you need to get off here and go, and go down this street. And I'm trying to drive through Atlanta and it's taking me down this, these side roads. And you know, sometimes, you ever have an argument with Waze before? It's like, you don't know what you're talking about. You think, they're just gonna take, and sometimes they are, they're just, they're really wrong. Waze is wrong, but they're taking me through this part of Atlanta on the left side of, of 85, right before I get into the city on the south side, and I'm starting to drive through this part, and I'm recognizing I'm the only person of my race in this part of town. <laughs> and I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was a poor part of town, and, I'm nav and it's navigating me down all these side streets, and I mean, there's cars, boom, 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 <laughs> looking down at it, like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, 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 I, and I see the, the poverty is, is obvious. You see houses with just unbelievable poverty that people are living in, and you just see the, the lifestyle of people that kind of live in urban centers that, that maybe don't have a lot of money. And I don't normally see that, and I'm seeing this, and the Lord starts to, to move on me, and I thought, I thought, you know, it's interesting. I normally, in a, in a situation like this, I fight, might find a little fear, but instead of fear, I'm feeling compassion. I'm saying, Lord, what are you saying to me? And he says, I want you to do something about this. I want you to do something about this. I want you to go home, and I want you to think of something that you can do for this. And can I just tell you something? I don't know what we're gonna do exactly, but we're gonna do something about that. We're gonna do something about that. I don't know about you, but I, I just, I can't, I can't fathom why we're the richest country in the world and we have this kind of poverty right next door to us. What's causing that? And then I realize it's because we don't see it. We don't see it. Now here's, the Lord gave me this illustration. I'm gonna try to do something. It's a little of a bit of a gamble. But this is one of those, uh, those bubble makers. You know those big bubble makers you give to the kids right there? And so I'm gonna try to do something. I may fail miserably. I did pretty good in the first service, so maybe it'll work. So, so look at this, look at this. Isn't that awesome? Look at those bubbles. So why did you do that? I wanted you to get an image of a bubble because probably you live in one. 
and you don't even know it. And the problem with seeing is sometimes we only see inside the bubble, not outside the bubble. So, wait a minute. Now watch, listen to this. I mean, there's all kinds of bubbles. There's the Hamilton Mill bubble. You live out in Hamilton Mill, the, the suburban bubble. There's the Midtown bubble. That's a whole different bubble than the Hamilton Mill bubble. That's the urban bubble. You got the North Cobb bubble. You got the Norcross bubble. You got all kinds of, you got racial bubbles. You got political bubbles. You got economic bubbles. You got uh, educational bubbles. You got, you got all kinds of bubbles that people live in. And many times because they live in there, they never break outside of the bubble. They don't see anything outside of that bubble. That's why if you live in a, a bubble that's filled with poverty or struggles or bad things happening to you, you're gonna think that's what life is all about. You're gonna think that's all that life matters is what's happening to, the, to me or it's happening to my group in my bubble. And you can get so caught up in your bubble, you no longer see what's going on outside of your bubble. And I've tried to explain this to people all the time that you know this is the beautiful thing about this particular location, this church. And we try to locate this church to break bubbles. We try to locate it to break bubbles because we knew it's not in a, it's not in a great prosperous area, but we, need, we, we will draw people from certain sectors of Atlanta. Gwinnett County, when we moved here, was 92% white. I know it's hard to imagine that right now because now Gwinnett County is the most multicultural county, second most multicultural county in the United States. We have 33, listen, you know who the majority is? Hispanics. Latinos, buenos dias, senor, 33%. Second is, is blacks, 32%. And we count blacks from everywhere. We don't call them African-Americans because some of them are from Jamaica, some of them are from different places like that, but some of them are from Africa. There's some of you from Africa. How many Africans do we have here? Do we have any? Yeah, see, I'll tell you. I'll tell you, there's no shortage of you. I love Africans, I love Africans. Oh God, help me be like an African. 32% of you, 26% white, and going down, moving north. <laughs> I think 18 or 16% Asian, and that's growing. By the way, the Asian population is growing. You better watch out, it might overtake Gwinnett County. <laughs> There's certain port portions of Gwinnett County that are predominantly all Asian, and so we have, a, we have a very mixed county. And so I said to myself, how, how, do we, how do we do this compassion thing? And he says, you gotta get people to see outside of their culture, outside of their economic conditions, outside of their education, start to see the whole world which leads me to the second thing, the second part, is you gotta be willing <clears throat> to feel the pain of others. Now, <clears throat> I want you to think deeply about this, because this is, this is kind of the Selah moment I want you to have with me. All of you campuses, I want you to think deeply about this. When you start to feel pain, one of the most common things is we try to avoid pain. We try to avoid feeling pain. So we, we don't usually put our, our lives in situations where we have to feel pain. But when I signed up to be a pastor, I realized one of the things you sign up to be 
is you're gonna have to be in the lives of people that are going through pain. And I, I had this thing before I became a pastor, I, I didn't wanna be a pastor because I said, I, I, I don't like feeling people's pain. And then you know how you have to go visit somebody in the hospital and they're dying of cancer and you gotta go visit them and you gotta be around them and you gotta feel the pain of they're going through and the heartache they're going through and all the stuff they're struggling with and you gotta be in the room with them. I would rather just send a sympathy card or a text, hey, I'm praying for you. But you can't do that as a pastor. But you can do that as a congregant, as somebody who's going to church. And so the Lord began to show me, he says, what's happening is that there's so much pain in the world right now that people can't feel the pain of others because they're too busy dealing with their own pain. They got so much personal pain. And this, if, this, if we're not careful as Christians, we can get so absorbed in our personal pain that we don't have any room to feel the pain of other people. So years ago when we started Victory, people asked us, how did, how did you get Victory to become so multicultural? How did it become 140-something nations? How did you do that? And I, and I said, it's pretty, pretty kind of interesting and simple thing. I said, we started the church with six people. They were all white. And I said to them, I said, we've got to get engaged in the community of people from other cultures and other races because God has called our church to reconcile culture. He's called us to be a church of many, cult, many races and many cultures. At that time, our goal was 100 nations. Now our goal is 196, which is all the nations of the world. Let's, let's have a church of all the nations of the world. Would y'all like to have that? But back then in 1990, in a predominantly 90% white county, that was not a popular thing. And the Lord began to speak to us, and here's what the, what the Lord said. He said, I want you to pray for, 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 so that you begin to enter into the world of somebody of a different culture. I want you to feel the pain of a different culture. And the first group of people that he had me feel the pain of was black America. And I started realizing, I grew up here in the South, but I never really engaged myself into the culture of black America. I did not know the pain that they were dealing with or that you were dealing with. And as, I'm, as I start to engage, it, it looked a little bit like this. As I would meet somebody that was in the, in the black culture, I would invite them into my home and I would ask them to share their story with me. Share your story. I wanna learn, I wanna, I wanna learn what you've been through. And as I started hearing story after story after story, I realized this is not an experience that white America has. But I've, I've tried to filter a lot of times my feelings towards black America through my experience in white America. And I can't do that as long as I just stay in the bubble of white America. Are you following me? Then it took it a little further and he says, now I want you to also expand yourself into people from other countries, not just necessarily just the, the Southern African American community, but other nations because in 96 when the Olympics came, it, it alerted the whole world. Atlanta's a place to go to. And the world started moving here. And some of you moved here. You came from other places. You came from the Europe. You came from Asia. You came from uh, uh, Africa. You came from different places. And you came here, and the ways you got here are different. Not all of you came legally. Well, you know, the right way. Some of you came illegally. 
And when you come illegally, then you have to live with the fear and the intimidation of that and what that looks like. And the reason some of you came illegally is not because you just wanted to break the law. It's because you were absolutely desperate to get into a place where you could take care of your family. And in your situation, many times was you were not able to do that in the country that you came from. And the stories that I have heard and the friendships that I have formed have given me a whole different view on immigration than what I hear on Fox News and CNN every day. Y'all all right out there? As they begin to constantly talk about the borders, and I agree, listen to me, listen to me, hear me clearly, I believe in borders. I believe in proper legal immigration. I believe that we should do it the right way. What we didn't have planned was 9-11. And when 9-11 happened, it shut the borders down for long periods of time. And they could only process so many people. So all the people that were having struggles in war-torn countries or heavily persecuted countries could not get in unless they did it the wrong way. And they did it the wrong way, not because they're trying to bring fentanyl into the country, not because they're trying to bring human trafficking, which people are trying to do, but that's not why they came here. They came here to try to find a better life for their families. So I would, get in, I would start to get to know people that were here illegally, and I started feeling compassion instead of, you just need to go back to your country. <laughs> did y'all hear that? All the campuses, did you hear that? I started finding that Jesus loves people from other countries as much as he loves Americans. He doesn't actually wake up in the morning and say pledge of allegiance to the, to the <laughs> United States of America. He, I pledge allegiance to the United States, but he doesn't. And, and he doesn't wake up with red, white, and blue outfit on. He, a big hat, Uncle Sam. He, he actually thinks about the whole world. And then it occurred to me one time I was interacting with these people that one of the names it gives some of you that are immigrants is aliens. You're called aliens. All right? And then I started reading the Bible, and it said when you become a Christian, you are an actual alien. You're an alien now. No, Peter said we're aliens in this world. He actually said alien. Alien. <laughs> you're an alien in this world. You no longer, you live in the world, but you're no longer from this world. And then you start looking up the word alien in the Bible, and you'll see every time you see aliens come in contact with the Jews in the Old Testament, God always tells the Jews, make sure you take good care of the aliens. Make sure that you honor them, that you bless them, that you take care of them, that you don't just turn them away because they're not from your tribe. Now, I know some of you are going, yeah, yeah, say it, pastor. But you live in your alien bubble. You stay hooked up in there and you think all my needs are revolving around my culture and my, my bubble. And you don't even think of anybody outside of your bubble. I came across this scripture years ago that Paul wrote and it just changed me. It's a life scripture for me when he started talking about this. And here's, and here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19. Even though I'm free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people, religious people, non-religious people, meticulous moralists, loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized. And here's, the, here's how he qualified. In case I didn't list you, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world 
and try to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. All right, so here's the deal. I'm trying to be like Jesus. I'm saying, okay, Jesus, talk to me about this. I need to feel the pain of people. And he said, don't you understand that when I came to the earth, one of the things, the key features of my life was a willingness to suffer for others. A willingness to suffer for others, to give up some of my rights for the sake of others. Now think about this. God, who is in the heavens, who controls the universe, makes himself a human in the human form, comes into the earth through the birth of birth, through a virgin birth, is born like a baby, a vulnerable baby, grows up as a tender plant, and then lives a life only three years where he's ministering to people, suffers on a cross, dies on a cross because of what you did, not what he did, takes your place, and then ascends to heaven. And here's how Isaiah describes it. I want you to listen to this. Isaiah chapter 53 He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest griefs. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We left God's plans to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. That's why I don't have any problem in the morning getting down on my knees and lifting my hands and worshiping Jesus. I don't have any problem worshiping Jesus because I begin to realize everything I've done evil, everything I've done wrong, he suffered for that. He took it upon his body when he went to that cross. Everything I'm physically suffering, he took it upon his body. Everything I'm mentally suffering, he took it upon himself. He took my place on that cross so that I could have a life, so that I could live. And how should I live? Like him. So part of my life in the earth is being willing to lay down my life for the sake of other people's lives. Which leads me to the third thing, and I'll wrap it up with this. Compassion is something that moves beyond feelings to action. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road, guys. We're a big crowd of people here. I haven't seen this many people in church in a while. There's a lot of you here today. In the middle of July, way to go, way to go. (laughs) A lot of you at the other campuses, we're we're all pressing in to learn more about Jesus. And we're faced with this idea that God wants us to live on this earth to give up for other people, to suffer to a certain degree. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to you know, get sick for people or die on a cross for people, but it means that you need to give up part of your convenient life for the sake of other people. All right, so let me ask you a question, all of you, all campuses, on, online, how you doing with that? If, 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 if you really evaluate your life, do I really live to help other people? So there, let me explain to you the difference so that you understand the difference. There's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is when we feel pity 
or sorrow for someone else's misfortune, but we care at arm's length. It's, you know, oh, I'm so sorry that you're going through that. We send a sympathy card, a sympathy text. We call them with a sympathy call, but we don't get involved. Empathy is when we allow ourselves to feel the pain of the other person and it motivates us to do something about it. It motivates us to take action, to go do something to help a particular individual. Sympathy kind of comes from a vertical perspective. I'm looking down on the situation and I'm feeling bad for you. Empathy gets down at the eye level of the person, looks them eye to eye and says, I don't only feel your pain, but I'm here for you. I'm here to help you. What can I do to make a difference to help you in your life? This is what we're trying to create here in this church. We're trying to create a people that are willing to get down at eye level with people. They're willing to interact with a world that's hurting because I'm telling you right now, this is a hurting world right now. It's a hurting world. And we've gotta get our eyes off of ourselves, off of our needs, off of our wants, and start thinking about being like Jesus. So here's what he says in 1 John. John says it this way. <clears throat> he says in verse, chapter three, verse 16, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show truth by our actions. And Jesus gave it to us in a simple way. This is, this is the simple rule of thumb. Here's what he says in Matthew 7, 12. Here's a simple rule of thumb. These are the words of Jesus, a guide for your behavior in life. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. You add up God's law and prophets, and this is what you get. In other words, all the Old Testament, all the law, all the prophets, you can add it all up the things that they said and put, boil it down to one thing. Do for others what you want them to do for you. And I wrote this down one time. What God is saying is exchange your place with, with whatever person or persons you're thinking about and ask this question. Just ask this question. If I was where you are, and you are where I am, how would I want you to treat me? If I was where you are, and you are where I am, how would you want me to treat, you to be treated? Years ago, we decided, <clears throat> Colleen and I decided, okay, I don't care how big this church gets, I don't care how busy we get, never allow yourself to forget this principle when I bring people before you. And several times this has happened, but most recently, the most recent time happened about five years ago when we met a young girl walking out of church one Sunday that God just clearly spoke to us about within a few minutes that we were supposed to talk to get engaged in her life. Now, we talk to people all the time out in the lobby, and don't be up there standing in line. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see, if you, see if God speaks to you about <laughs> me right now. That's not what that is. She wasn't doing that at all. She was just innocent, in and out of the church, and God just, how many of you know, sometimes God just points out a person to you. 
He cares about the one. Do for the one what you wanna do for everyone. So we're sitting there and she comes out and I start talking to her and just nice girl talking about, you know, loves our church, thank you for all the things you've been teaching, blah, blah, blah. And then she walks away and I said, you know, I said, Colleen, I, I, you didn't get a chance to meet her, but there's a girl that came in. I said, I think we're supposed to talk to her next time she comes through the line. So next week we came back up and she came back through the line, said something to both of us. And we start, I pulled her aside and Colleen and I started talking to her. We started asking her some questions and we found out her story. And it was a, it was a hard story. And, it's, and the story went something like this, if I can give it to you in a real Reader's Digest version. When she was a kid, her father, who's African-American, and her mother, who's Mexican, had, they had five siblings together. They were all in a one house, and their father lost his business, and he turned to drugs. And when he turned to drugs, he got arrested several times, and on his third time, he was put in prison for, for good. So he was taken from her family when she was a young teenager. When that happened, her mother had a nervous breakdown. And her mother couldn't cope with it, and she just left the family. She just packed up the car and left the kids. And so suddenly you have five kids in a home with no parents, no support system, and trying to make it. And she said there was a, there was a season there where we lived in the house. We had no electricity, no running water. It was, it was, it was pretty rough until DFACS finally discovered them, took them and separated them according to homes. And she said, I lived in a few different people's homes and till I graduated from high school, and then she said, as you can imagine, because I didn't have real parents, I was kind of wild and doing crazy stuff, and, but I ended up having enough sense to go to college and borrow money. I had to borrow money, you know, modern day slavery, borrow, borrow money to go to college, and uh, all you college people know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> and, and, and she got a degree and moved to Atlanta, got a job, did really well, and then because she, had, she didn't have life skills, she didn't grow up with family to teach her life skills. She didn't know how to handle money. She didn't know how to think about her job and stuff like that. She found herself on the, on the, on the verge of homelessness. She had lived at one time in the uh, Atlanta shelter. And she lived there for a season. And she said it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because she said, I, I got to see what people are like in these situations. And she said a lot of people judge them, but she said a lot of these situations are not because they're on drugs and alcohol. Everybody thinks it's drugs and alcohol. Sometimes it is, but she said a lot of it's just pure poverty. And so she's on the verge of losing her home. She has a car accident, and this is when we're talking to her. She has no insurance. And so her car's totaled. She borrowed money to buy this car at 23.6 interest. Y'all are going, some of y'all got loans like that, and you don't want to, but now you just heard how people feel about those kind of loans. She'd already paid for the car three times, you know, with that kind of interest rate and still, still owed money on it. So she was in a situation, she had, she had lost her job and Kylie and I said, okay, I want you, we want you to come live with us. I want you to come live in our home. And, and, she, and we knew when we were making that decision, we're now, we're an empty nesters, our daughter's gone, we don't have anybody, we're free. <laughs> and then the Lord said, no, okay, not only are you gonna invite her to your home, but she's gonna be a part of your family. She's not gonna just be a roommate in the house. She, you're gonna adopt her into your family, which means you're gonna have to get down eye to eye and get in all her stuff and deal with it. And so for the next two years, 
She lived with us. And by the way, she, she gave me permission to share this with you guys. The next two years she lived with us, this is like three years ago, and we started getting into her life. We started sending her to classes. We sent her to crown class. We paid her, her, her loan off on that car. We bought her another car. We did what family does. She became a part of our family. We call her our goddaughter. She's not our physical daughter, but she's our goddaughter. She comes to our house when, on her birthday. She comes to our house at Thanksgiving. She comes at Christmas time. She doesn't live with us anymore, but she's lived with us off and on for three years. Now she's in Baltimore. She's in the Army Reserves. She's, she works for the USO. She has a great job. And I think she's... I think you're watching right now because I told you I was going to talk about you. I want you to put her picture up. This is, this is Kylie. This is Kylie. This is my girl right here. This is my girl right here. I never met anybody like her. Of all the things, she's been through all kinds of horrific things. But all those things did to her was make her more compassionate and more love. She's one of the most loving, compassionate people I've ever met. She, she ministers to the homeless in Baltimore all the time. I said, Kylie, you're a single woman. You can't just walk around homeless people in downtown Baltimore, one of the most dangerous cities in America. She says, oh, PD, just let me do it. I just, that's who she's created to be. And, and she loves helping people. And I keep thinking to myself, Colleen and I, learn more from her than she learned from us. She gave us more than we gave her. She gave us insight into what it's like to grow up as a mixed race. She gave us insight to what it's like to grow up without a family. She gave us insight to what it's like to have siblings that are spread all over the place with all kinds of issues because of not having a family. She gave us insight of what it's like to grow up poor, to be homeless. She gave us all kinds of things. She made, she made us feel the pain of other people so that we would want to do something about it. And we, we realize that every person in this, in this room, every person at every campus will have people like this walk into our lives and we can either say, be warm, be filled, I hope you make it, or we can do something about it. Now, you're not always gonna take them into your home, but what would, what would be wrong with taking somebody into your home? What would be wrong with it? We've done it countless people. Feel, we feel strange when we don't have somebody else living in our home. Because like we're not doing anything. We're not helping people like we should. But each person in this church, if you just took on one person in your life as a project to help them, to bless them, to encourage them, once you sow that seed, it multiplies. I'm watching her minister to hundreds of people now in her life because of her relationship with us. We're getting to see the fruit of her life up close. Now, I'm just telling you this because as we go forward into the future, things can get a little tough in America. And I don't want you to freak out when they get tough. I want you to be prepared for it because the church has got, this is an opportunity. The church always has its best opportunity when difficult times come. Evangelism is the easiest when, when trouble is around. When we don't have trouble, people don't need Jesus. When we have trouble, people are looking for some answers. Guess where the answer is? It's in you. You are to be like Jesus. 
And the more you're like Jesus, it's not about going around sharing your faith with everybody. It's just, you're just like Jesus. And you live like him. And you live holy. And you live kind. And you live attentive. And you live with compassion. And when you have these characteristics, listen, you begin to feel. You begin to smell. You begin to look. There's an aura on you. That is a Jesus person. When you walk into a room, people's eyes look up. What has just walked into this room? Jesus. So I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you because I just believe God wants to help you grow in this knowledge of who Jesus is and the fellowship of his sufferings. And I want to pray that God will move with compassion in you to this lost and dying world that's awaiting you, that's around you. And perhaps some of you have situations like I've just described where you could be helping somebody and you just haven't been willing to suffer for that. But Father, my prayer is right now as you start to, 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 to challenge us every single week to be more like you. My prayer is, God, that somewhere in our hearts we begin to see that there's a, there's a void that we need to fill with being like Jesus. And some of us are here and we recognize, man, I, I just, I'm living for myself. I, if I'm really honest, my life has really just been, been revolving around what I want and what I will. And I know that's not the right way to be. Perhaps you're here today and you just don't have that complete assurance that you are truly in, engaged with who Jesus is in your life. I wanna pray for you. I wanna pray for you at all the campuses with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, I want you to simply say, I need to get my life right with God. I need to repent of my sins. I need to turn away from this stuff I've been in. And I need to really focus in on living for Jesus. If that's you, lift your hand up real high. Lift it up all across this building. Lots of you. Good Lord. Look at all these hands. Thank you. You can put them down. Let's pray. Let's pray, let's pray this prayer together. Jesus, right here, right now, I repent of my sins. I turn away from this world to you, Jesus. I believe that you are the son of God who died on a cross for my sins. And today, I ask you, Jesus Christ, come into my heart, take over my life. From this day forward, you are my Lord. In Jesus' name. Now just lift your hands to him. Lord, we just surrender to you. We embrace you. We invite you to come now and take over in our hearts. I pray for everybody online. I pray for everybody in all the campuses. I pray, God, that moving forward from this point on, we're no longer just going to feel, but we're going to act. We're going to have an action of compassion in this church. That You're going to mobilize the army of this church to really make a difference in other people's lives. And when you bring people across our path, sovereignly help us not look the other way help us to look them right in the eye and just say what can I do to help you what can I do to make a difference in your life I believe God you're taking this church and you're making us like Jesus and so we embrace that in Jesus name and everybody said amen and amen come on let's give him praise